We come now to Matthew chapter 28. We're beginning, we're going to embark on a new series of messages that I'm entitling the followers. The followers. As I read Matthew chapter 28 and going into Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, I I see some very interesting things about the followers, the first followers of Jesus. You see, Easter Sunday, we had a great Sunday, Easter Sunday. Over 2,000 people came into Aloma Church and worshiped, celebrating the goodness and the grace of God, rejoicing and praising Him and worshiping Him. We had a great and marvelous and wonderful Sunday. But we come back now on this Sunday, the Sunday after Easter, and we say, what now? You know, Easter Sunday, that's the Super Bowl for Christians. That's, that's the main event. We come back after the Super Bowl and we say, what now? What next? I, I, I guess that's exactly what the disciples of Jesus would have said the week after Easter. What now? Everything has changed. Jesus is alive. The Spirit of God is living inside of us. What now? What next? What we're going to do over the next through a 10-message series, we're going to look at five aspects that, that we've identified in the book of Matthew and the book of Acts. Five aspects of the followers of Jesus. They worshiped, they engaged, they confessed, they connected, and they shared. So we're going to spend on those five aspects, we're going to spend two weeks on each one of those five aspects. Today, we're going to start with worship. This week and next week, we're going to look at the aspect of worship because immediately after Jesus rose from the dead, that's exactly what those followers did. They worshiped him. We're going to see that today in Matthew chapter 28. As Jesus rose from the dead, those that were following him, they they prostrated themselves down. They, They began to have their life, their heart, everything within them. They began to worship God Almighty. So today, we're going to ask the question, what is worship? What is worship? Matthew chapter 28, we'll begin reading verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading from the ESV, that's the English Standard Version, but you follow along in your translation as I read from mine. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse number 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, so I have told you. Verse 8. So, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and he said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. I want us to notice, first of all, that everybody worships. You see, God created you in his image. God created you with the capacity to worship. You can't help but to worship. Did you hear me? You can't help but to worship. You're going to worship something or someone. Jack Graham, my mentor, the pastor of the great church, Prestonwood Church in Plano, Texas, he, he told me, Wesley, if you want to know who you worship and what you worship, you show me your checkbook, and I can tell you who you worship and what you worship. You show me the calendar that's on your phone, and I can tell you who you worship and what you worship by what you do. And it's so true. Where your money is, there your heart is. Where your time is, there your heart is. 
The reality is we all worship. My question to you is, who do you worship? If you're a follower of Jesus, then you should be worshiping Jesus. Your time, your efforts, your finances, your family, everything should revolve around Jesus Christ. You can't help but to worship. It's a part of your DNA. You know, God created three living things. He created flowers and trees and vegetation. That can't worship. Yes, he can make the rocks cry out if if need be. Flowers don't worship God. Your pet dog, Fido, he can't worship God. But you can. You have that innate capacity to worship. When God created man, he looked and he said, that is very good. When he created the the heavens and the, the sun and the stars and the moon and the earth and the waters and all of that, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. But when he created man, he said, it is very good. He created us in his image, the ability to worship him. We have that capacity, but so many of us, we, we place that worship and we begin to worship other things and other entities and they become our God. What you worship, that is your God. There's many gods, little g, but there's only one God who created the heavens and the earth. He has a son named Jesus and he died for you. You can't escape it. You cannot escape worshiping. You will worship. The question is, who are you worshiping and what will you worship? Ralph Waldo Emerson, who is not, he's not the epitome or the icon of Christian orthodoxy in any stretch of imagination, but he wrote something that is very good about the nature of worship. He said, a person will worship something, have no doubt about that. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are what? Becoming. Hmm. Now let's ask the question, what is worship? Number one, number one, worship is Jesus making himself known. That's what worship is. Worship is Jesus making himself known. Mary from Magdala. Magdala is a fishing village just north of Tiberias along the Sea of Galilee. Mary of Magdalene and the other Mary, they were going to the tomb to prepare the body of Jesus. They get to the tomb. The stone was rolled away. They walked in and they noticed it was empty. The guards that were there, remember we were talking about the guards that Satan had put there, the Pharisees had put there to make sure nobody stole the body of Jesus. They were scared. They were fearful. The stone was rolled away. They went in. They looked. The body was gone. Floods of thoughts were coming to their mind. Did somebody steal the body of Jesus? What's going on? What's happening? An angel appeared. And that angel said to those women, don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. Go and tell the disciples. Go and tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee, and there he will meet with them. As those women walked away that day, they were rejoicing. I would say they they were bringing all these spices and herbs to prepare the body of Jesus, and when that angel appeared and they realized that Jesus was alive, Those herbs and those spices, they left there and they began to run to tell the disciples that Jesus is alive. And as they were on their way to tell the disciples, Matthew provides us an account of what happened. Those two women who were running to tell the disciples, which by the way shows us 
there's something unique about this story. Where in this society, women were held as a second-class citizen, but yet, who did Jesus first appear to? The women. If this was make-believe, let me tell you, the writers of this, if this was make-believe and not true, the writers would not have had Jesus appear to the women first. He wouldn't. They wouldn't have. They wouldn't have. It would have been to the men. It would have been to those who were closest to Jesus. But he appeared to those women Those two women that were running to meet the disciples. And and the Bible says that Jesus appeared and he said one word to them. He said, greetings. Maybe your translation says rejoice. Translated in today's vernacular, he said, good morning. Hello. It's a common, it was a common phrase that they used to, to say good morning or hello. It was... A very common, a very usual greeting, but it was an unusual circumstance. While it was a very common saying to say this was no common meeting that these women were having, it was extraordinary. It was supernatural, I guess you could say. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, died, was buried, and rose again, and Jesus was making himself known to those women. He showed up. The Jesus showed up. He made himself known. Notice that they didn't worship that angel. That angel showed up. They didn't worship him. But when Jesus made himself known, worship began to take place. Here at Aloma Church, We believe that Jesus is central to everything, especially our worship. We will not sing songs that do not glorify Jesus. We will not preach a message that does not bring honor and glory to Jesus. I shared the first hour, I'll share with you, it was meant as a backhanded comment to me, but I took it as the greatest compliment that I had ever received. A few years ago, somebody came up to me and said, Preacher, You always preach about Jesus. Don't you have another message? Can't you preach anything other than Jesus? Nope. It's only Jesus. So when we sing, when we worship, when we give, everything that we do, when we preach, it's it's all about Jesus. Worship is Jesus making himself known. Worship begins with God. Worship begins with God. God has made himself known. God has put on public display. Christ didn't die in a a closet. Christ didn't die in some secluded area. Christ died for the public to see. He put it on display. And that tomb that he was placed in, that rock was moved so anybody and everybody could look in and see his body is not there. It's public display. God has made himself known through the Son, Jesus Christ. Worship. Worship is Jesus making himself known to us. Number two, worship is our response to Jesus making himself known. You don't have to wonder if did God make himself known. Yes, he most certainly did through the person of Jesus Christ. Worship now then is our response to Jesus making himself known. Notice that worship is not about me. It's about him. Worship is not about music. Worship is not about style of music. Worship is about him. 
Can I tell you that in churches all across our country right now, there are fits and divisions and splits and controversy going on in the lives of churches because of music, because of style of music, because of preference of music. Oh, the worship leader didn't sing my favorite song today. I'm mad. They were too loud. They were too quiet. I don't hear that one very often. It was too fast. It was too slow. From my heart to yours, Aloma Church, thank you for not being like that. Thank you. Because this church is unique. We don't fight those battles. And let me tell you, they're very real. And the reason why they're real is because Satan is real. Satan, in Ezekiel chapter 28, we find that Satan, when Lucifer, when he was an angel, he was over music. He was the musical angel. And the reason why Satan attacks music so much is because that's what he knows. And in churches all across our country, he is attacking churches in regard to their music. Because you see, if Satan can get us focused on things that don't really matter, then he's got us where he wants us. And he has churches focused on style of music, the speed of music, the beat of music. And all of this, they're focused on all of this, and they begin to fight amongst themselves, causing divisions. And Satan is sitting back laughing, saying, I got them where I want them. Worship is not about me. It's not about you. It's all about him. Thank you, Aloma, for understanding that. Worship's not about style. It's not about preference because it's not about you or me. Worship is our response to Jesus making himself known. So often we think we worship God because of what he gives to us. We, we come to church with this mindset what am I going to get out of the music? What am I going to get out of the message? What am I going to get out of uh, the service? What am I going to get out of church? And this religious, consumeristic society that we have, that's, that's where we're at. What am I going to get out of this? People show up for entertainment rather than genuine worship. But listen to me. When we really, when we truly worship God, when we gather together, it's not so much what I can get out of it, but it's all about what I can put into it that matters. It's not about what I get out, but it's what I give, what I put into it. Do you see the difference? Now, before you start charging me with pitchforks and throwing tomatoes at me, it is very important to get something out of the message. We want you to leave encouraged. We want you to leave excited. We want, we want there to be a part where you walk out differently. Our prayer, our prayer, my prayer for you every single day that when you step into the sanctuary is that every single person walks out changed and different before they come in. I, I want you to have an experience with God through this service. Yes, but listen, that's not priority. It's not what I can get, but it's what I can give. It's what I can put into it. My first question in worship is not what I can get, but what I can give. So look at your worship today. Have you given everything to the Lord? Have you, can you honestly say that when you walk out of this sanctuary, did you give your heart in worship? Did you give sacrificially in your tithes and offerings? Did you truly, did you really give? 
Did you really sacrifice? Did you give love and devotion to Him? Worship is simply our response to Jesus making Himself known. A couple of weeks ago, we were looking in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, and in that passage, I draw your attention back there because it's so vitally important to what we're talking about here today. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, brothers, I urge you by the mercies of God to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Notice what he said there. I'm not going to preach that message again, but the point is this. A living sacrifice. We said living sacrifice, that doesn't make any sense, remember? We said if you sacrifice something, that something is dead, not alive. So when Paul says to make your life a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, he says, for that is your worship. What he's saying is you make your life a response to Jesus making himself known to you. You make your life, you make your checkbook, you make your family, you make everything who you are an act of worship over to God. That's worship. That's worship, friend. Number three, worship is humble adoration of Jesus. Look at the women. With your Bibles open, keep your Bibles open. Matthew 28, look at verse 9. Look at the women's response. Behold, Jesus went to them and said, Greetings, and they came up and they took hold of his feet and they discipled. No. They grabbed a hold of his feet and they listened to him. No. They grabbed a hold of his feet and they what, church? Worshipped him. Humble adoration. See, it was no longer possible for them to look at Jesus the way they did. He is now the risen Lord. Yes, he, he healed the lame, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, but now something is different. He himself died, and now he's rose again. He indeed is Lord over death, hell, and the grave. So now they cannot approach Jesus casually the way they did before. He simply said, hey, how you doing? Good morning. They hit their feet, they hit their knees, they hit their face, and they prostrated themselves in humble adoration to the Lord. On that dirty trail, on that dirty road, they laid themselves down at the feet of Jesus. And the Bible pictures them grabbing a hold of his ankles and his feet, kissing them and worshiping him. They were compelled in adoration, in all humility, to worship him. They say, Pastor, do we... Is it okay to raise your hands in worship? Most certainly. If God leads you to do it, then you should do it. If God doesn't, then you shouldn't do it. You see, worship is humble adoration. If God leads you to raise your hand during worship, and if you don't, then that's sin. But if you do it and He doesn't lead you to do it, then you're drawing all attention to yourself, and that's sin. These ladies, they, they prostrated themselves on the ground and they grabbed a hold of the feet. The feet in the Greek world were the dirtiest parts of the body because, you see, they didn't have shoes. They, they wore sandals, and so the feet were the dirtiest part of the body. And these women went straight to the dirtiest part of Jesus' body. They grabbed a hold of his feet and they began to worship him at his feet. Verse 9. 
They didn't care what the other passerbys were saying. They were worshiping Jesus. It wasn't there for a show. They, they weren't doing, saying, hey, look at me. I'm, I'm worshiping Jesus. That's not what it was about. They were worshiping Jesus in their own way. If we regard him in low esteem, then that's how we will treat him. But if we regard him in high esteem, then we will treat him and respond to him in that way. Every aspect of the worship service is a worship offering. The time of offering, the time of giving, that's, that's a time of service. It's a time of worship where we sacrificially give because he sacrificially gave to us. A time of music, that is obviously a time of worship where we sing praises to him. The time of the sermon, did you realize that this time is a time of worship where you're responding to God and God is speaking to you? This is also a time of worship. And so is the invitation. Church, can I be very real with you for just a moment? Can I be very honest with you for just a moment? It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that during the invitation when people get up and and walk out of the service, you know why? Because so often we don't see the invitation as a moment of worship. We see the invitation as something that's just tacked on the end. It's not. The invitation is perhaps even the most important time of the service. And when you get up and you walk out, you're giving Satan the ability and the foothold to be able to distract those who need to make decisions. I understand there's emergencies and all of that, but friend, listen to me. Hear my heart. Hear my heart. The invitation, the time where we're asking people to respond to what God is saying is a moment of worship. It's a moment for people to respond as they're worshiping God and they're communicating and talking to God. God is also talking to us. This is not a one-way communication. When we're worshiping God and we're talking to Him, God is talking to us. And the invitation time, don't miss this, the invitation time is the time in the service where we say to anybody and everybody who's talking to God and God is talking to them, if He's talking to you, then this is the moment that you respond to that. So what does it communicate when we walk out during the most important time of the worship? These women, they responded to the risen Lord by humbly prostrating themselves, adoring him on the ground. That should tell us about the importance of the posture of worship. Number four, worship is our, is our obedience to what he says. Worship is our obedience to what he says. When he met those women that day, he, they responded to him, and he immediately gave them something to do. He said, now, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they'll see me. They responded in immediate, in immediate obedience. Now, what I want you to see in the Greek language, this word worshiped him in verse number 9. It ties back down in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 and 17, we see the, the followers of Jesus worshiped him as well. What that means is that everything that is mentioned here in Romans 28, the pericope, the, 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 the sections of Scripture in verses 1 through 10, and then verses 16 and following, all of this is an aspect of worship. Okay? 
So when we read verses 1 through 10, we, then we read verses 16 and following in Matthew chapter 28, all of this is centered upon worship. So when Jesus told them to go and do something and they obeyed, that is a, that is a clear distinction of a worship event that they responded because all of this is about worship. Obedience. Obedience doesn't mean that we're mindless slaves going through the motions. There's heart in this statement. Notice what the angel said to the women in verse number 6. He said, he, he's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come to the place where he lay. Then they go quickly. Then he said, now go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. You see that? Underline that word disciples there. You see it? If you mark in your Bible, underline that word. It's very important. It's very important because, you see, when we're talking about obedience to the Lord, we're not saying that you come in and we're mindless robots. There's heart behind this. There's emotion behind this. There's, there's feeling behind this. When Jesus showed up, he said greetings. And then in verse 10, he said, don't be afraid. Then he said, go tell my disciples. Is that what he said? No, what does he say in verse 10? He said, go and tell my brothers. You see that? The angels said, go tell my disciples. The women were very fearful. Every time Jesus presented himself in the first instances when, the people, when, when everybody was just kind of hanging out and around and Jesus just appeared, the Bible says they were fearful the first time that they met him. You know why? You know why? Because they deserted him. They left him. And the word for fear here literally means fear. They were scared. And Jesus is calming their fears. He said, look, I'm not coming to take a, 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 a switch, and, switch and, and, and take you out to the woodshed. I'm not doing that. Y'all know what the woodshed is, right? Y'all have woodsheds in Florida? No? Yeah? Well, kids, shaking your head, ask, ask your mom or dad what a woodshed is. They'll tell you. You've been there before, I'm sure. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Um, but he didn't say... He didn't appear to him and said, you knuckleheads, you deserted me in my, my most critical time. I told you to pray and you didn't pray. I told you to stand by me and you didn't stand by me. Is that what Jesus said? No. He appeared to those women. He said, you go and tell my brothers. How awesome is that? How personal is that? How affectionate, how emotional. That shows the heart of love in Jesus. Suppose I were to buy... Sarah, a dozen roses, and I walk into the house with these roses in my hand, and, and her face just lights up, and, and she says, Wesley, why in the world did you buy me these roses? Why would you do this? And my answer was, well, honey, it's my duty. <laughs> or I say, honey, they were free. <laughs> I'd go to the woodshed again. How do you think she would feel about those flowers? Not very good. Why? Because ultimately, it's not the flowers that she wanted, was it? No, she wanted the expression of my heart. The flowers were simply just a way. The flowers were simply just a vehicle for me to show how much I love her and adore her. So it is with worship. God wants your heart. If you're simply coming in and you're just going through the motions and you're, you're here because you have to be here, worship's not a show. Worship's not a duty. It's not a performance. 
God is repulsed by that. Just as your wife, your spouse would be repulsed if you did what I said earlier, the heart of God is repulsed when we come into a worship event and that's how we act in our heart. You see, worship is an expression being obedient, an expression of love. It shouldn't be canned or stale. Worship is to be exciting and alive. Worship, number five, is seeing Jesus as Lord over all. Seeing Jesus as Lord over all. The women went to that tomb that day thinking they were going to prepare the body of Jesus, put the herbs and the spices on it. When they got there, his body wasn't there. The angel had already uh, t- was taken over watching the tomb. The angel told them Christ had risen, that he was already gone. Go and tell the disciples see, they had seen him do miracles. Those two women saw him do miracles. In fact, in fact, Mary had her own story. But now something's different. Jesus not only defeated all of those sins, but he defeated death. Jesus is Lord of all. Listen to me very clearly and very carefully. Jesus did not become Lord of all because he rose from the dead. He demonstrated that he is Lord of all because he rose from the dead. There's a difference. Mary Magdalene, when she saw the risen Lord, I guarantee you, she went back and her story was very real in her mind. In Luke chapter 8, we find this woman who was possessed by many demons. We also find in the Gospel of John a woman who was a prostitute who had several demons, seven demons in her. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. She was a prostitute, a harlot, a woman who sold herself for the pleasure of others. Not a stand-up kind of girl. She was so involved in witchcraft or whatever she was involved in, she had seven demons in her. Jesus met her and healed her cleansed her, forgave her. While all these men were looking at her as a piece of meat, Jesus looked at her and said, I love you and I'm going to die for you. And he began to show her and express to her the love of God, that God created her in his very image. And she experienced a love that she never experienced before and she met Jesus Then she met him and he had rose from the dead. Things were a little bit different now. I guarantee you she had a flashback and her story went through her mind. Perhaps all of the baggage of life and those men that she slept with, all of those events came back into the forefront of her mind. But then she fell down at his feet because he had already forgiven her of all of that. She began to worship him. Friend, do you realize that you and I are no different than Mary Magdalene? We're all sinners. And whether you're a lady here and you sell yourself as Mary did, or you're a man here and you look at pornography on the computer, or you're a youth here and you dabble in things that you shouldn't be dabbling in. It doesn't matter. Sin is sin. With God, all sin is repulsive. A little white lie will send you to hell just as fast as murder. 
sin is sin. And the reality is we're all sinners. There's two types of people here today, those that are followers of Jesus and those who are not followers of Jesus. Those who are followers of Christ and those who don't follow Christ. When we say that Jesus is our Savior, what we're saying is that Jesus saved us from that sin, from that lifestyle. Are we going to continue to sin? You better believe it. I'm a low-down, no-good, dirty sinner. But I've been saved by grace. You're a no-good, low-down, dirty sinner. But if you know Jesus, you've been saved by grace. And despite your sin, despite the filth of your life, God says, I love you so much. You see, the first step in order to worship God is you have to be a follower of Jesus. You cannot truly worship God until you're a follower of Jesus. Yes, you can sing songs. Yes, you can give. Yes, you can participate in the sermon. But until you're a follower of Jesus, you're not going to worship God because this is not natural. It is not natural to worship God. What is natural is that we worship things like money. We worship things like drugs. We worship things like sex. We worship, we worship those things that are natural. That's what comes natural to us because we're natural. We're sinners. But when God makes you alive, when he creates within you a new heart, when you become, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, when you're born again, then you have the capacity and the desire to worship God. And worship is seeing Jesus as Lord of all. So when we sing, we reflect on him being Lord. When we give, we sacrificially give because he's given us so much. Notice, and this is in closing, notice Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17. I want you to see what happened. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they what? They worshipped him. They worshipped him. You see, this is a worship event. When Jesus made himself known, they began to worship and they called him and they said by worshiping him that you are Lord of all. But what's that next phrase? Some doubted. Some doubted. In every worship event, there's always those who are believers and those who aren't believers. There's those who are followers and those who are not followers. That's, that's the reality. That's the reality. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you don't know Christ as your Savior and Lord, my only question to you is, why not? Why not? You say, and I've heard them all before, but the one that really puzzles me is this. You know, Pastor, I've got to get some things in order in my life before I come to Jesus. What? <laughs> what? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You, you're going to spend your whole life trying to get your things in order and you're going to come to the end of your life and you're going to realize that you had a very miserable life because you can't put order to that which is disorderly. You can't do it. You come to Jesus just as you are and he'll take you just as you are and he will transform you into what he wants you to be. So I know there are some here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe, maybe you're a member of this church. Maybe, maybe you have gone to this church. Maybe you've memorized scripture. Maybe you've even been baptized. That's my story. 
the age of seven, I was baptized, but I was just as lost when I went under that water as I was when I came up out of that water. And if I would have died between the ages of seven and 17, let me tell you what would have happened. I would have split the gates of hell wide open. I was a good kid, good moral kid, but I was a sinner. I didn't know Christ. When you stand before God, and let me tell you, every single one of us will, on the day of accountability, on the day of reckoning, on the day of judgment, we're all going to stand before God, and the books are going to be open. And he's going to ask you one question. What did you do with Jesus? And if your response is, well, I was a good person, sorry. It's too late. It doesn't work. Well, I, I gave money. The pastor was talking, and they prayed, and they passed this plate, and I put some money in it. It's not what's going to get you to heaven, friend. I went to church. I joined a church. Listen. No, sorry. I was baptized. Sorry. Again. Sorry. But on that day, it's recorded in Scripture, God's going to look at many and say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. This is Jesus' words, not my words. Jesus said, broad is the gate and the way to destruction. Narrow is the way to happiness and to heaven. You see, Satan has blinded so many to think that if I'm a good moral person, if I belong to a church, if I go to church, if I, if I put money in the offering plate, if I read the Bible that if I memorize scripture, that somehow that will make me a Christian. Listen, Satan was there when Jesus died and Satan was there when Jesus rose again. Satan knows. Satan knows Jesus rose. If you're staking your salvation on a head knowledge of Jesus, and friend, you're lost. So many people are going to go to hell because of 10 inches. You know what 10 inches is? 10 inches is the distance from your brain to your heart. So many people have a head knowledge about Jesus, but you don't have a heart knowledge. He's not your Savior and Lord. Satan knows Jesus died, was resurrected. Je Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Satan knows all of those things, friend. But he's not going to go and spend eternity in heaven. You know why? Because Satan will never, ever, ever make Jesus Lord of his life. Is Jesus Lord of your life? If he's not, if you've never invited Christ into your life to be your Savior and your Lord, then the good news is you can right now. With heads bowed and eyes closed across this room, nobody's looking around, you can say a prayer. You say, does the prayer save me? No, the prayer doesn't save you. There's nothing salvific. There's nothing magical about this prayer at all. But the Bible says that if you believe by faith, that if you confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, the Bible says. So right now in the quietness and the stillness of this room, you can open your heart to Jesus. In your heart, not out loud, in your heart, tell the Lord you're a sinner. Go ahead. Confess you're a sinner. 
If you want Christ to be Lord of your life right now, confess. Lord, I confess I'm a sinner. Now ask him to forgive you for those sins. Dear God, forgive me for I am a sinner. Now ask him to come into your life in your own words. Ask him to come in and to save you. Lord Jesus, come into my life and save me. If you believe that he died on that cross, he was buried and he rose again on the third day. If you believe that, confess that. Say, dear Lord, I believe that you died for me. You was buried, you rose again. Confess it. Now I want you to thank him for the salvation that he has given to you in your own words. See, Pastor, I don't feel any different. Salvation is not based upon feelings. It's based upon the promise of God's word. And God said in Romans 10, 13, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you just call upon his name, the Bible says your name is written in the Lamb's book of life for all of eternity. And when you stand before him on that day of accounting, on that day of judgment, and he says, what did you do with Jesus? You're going to be able to say on this day, the Sunday following Easter Sunday at Aloma Church in Winter Park, Florida, I opened my heart and I made him Lord of my life. That's what I did with Jesus.